0: Uh, This hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee will now come to order. We are here today to consider five truly important positions of great uh, service to our nation. The first is Vivek uh, uh, Murthy to be the U.S. representative on the executive board of the World Health Organization. The next is Ms. Kathleen Fitzgibbons to be the ambassador to the Republic of Niger. Next is Eric Needler, to be the ambassador of the Republic of Rwanda. Next is Ms. Pamela Tremont, to be ambassador of the Republic of Zimbabwe. And finally, Mr. Richard Mills, to be the ambassador to the Republic of Nigeria. As chair of this committee, the Africa and Global Health Policy Subcommittee, this Congress, I'm eager to hear from each of you on how you intend to pursue the United States interests in the countries and organizations you'll respectively uh, be serving should you be confirmed by the United States Senate. But it's also important for us to see how the interests fit in with deepening and expanding our relationships and shared opportunities with countries across Africa. We know that too many people paint Africa, this massive continent with broad strokes, ignoring the incredible diversity and dynamism across the continent. I'm hopeful that in the aftermath of December's US-Africa Leadership Summit, that the United States will chart an emboldened path forward to strengthen US-Africa relations defined by shared visions and with an eye towards prosperity and sustained engagement as partners. In particular, I'd like to highlight the significance of the president's $55 billion commitment to advance Africa's economic and human capital development priorities. And the appointment of the special representative to ensure implementation of this and other summit deliverables is really a welcome sign. I'm looking forward to working with the administration and all of you to secure support for the financial commitment and ensure accountability from African leaders to deliver for their citizens. Now, it's an absolute pleasure for me, truly is, uh, to introduce the nominees before us who are dedicated Americans in their service already shown and demonstrated service. The first is someone I've known for quite a long time, Vivek Murthy. Uh, It's my honor to introduce him as the president's nominee to become the the next representative of the United States on the executive board of the World Health Organization, also known as WHO. Dr. Murthy is the current US Surgeon General. He doesn't just dress that way for his fun and enjoyment, and has served our country through one of the worst public health crises in modern history. Thanks to his effective and steady leadership and at the direction of the President of the United States, he was able to vaccinate millions in record time. Dr. Murthy also served as US Surgeon General under President Obama, where he oversaw the United States' response to the Ebola and Zika viruses, underscoring his ability to spearhead government-wide responses to public health threats. He has ample experience interacting with global health leaders, including the WHO Director General and foreign health ministers from around the world. I'll spare the committee this incredible resume, as uh, is uh, evident, uh, but I will say it is a quite extensive and impressive resume. It's truly a testimony to his qualifications for his role and how he is one great American dedicated to the health of our country. We've learned from this pandemic, we've learned about infectious diseases, and we know that such diseases have no borders, nor ideology, they affect human populations regardless. It's imperative that we have strong representation on the WHO. Uh, Dr. Murthy, I look forward to hearing from you and how and why U.S. leadership and engagement at the World Health Organization is critical to fostering sustainable, resilient, and innovative developments in public health around the world. Ms. Kathleen Fitzgibbons, uh, you have been nominated to be the U.S. Ambassador to Niger. It is, you are a career member of the Foreign Service, of which this committee is grateful. Uh, you have served as Deputy Chief of Mission in Nigeria. Your track record across Africa spans more than two decades. You started when you were 12 and includes tours of Sierra Leone, uh, Gabon, Uganda, and Chad. You are the recipient of multiple performance awards, including one for leadership during the West Africa Ebola crisis. Uh, You have served under multiple presidents, uh, dedicated yourself to this country's mission. Your assignments here in D.C. are also highly relevant, having worked in the State Department's office to combat and monitor trafficking in persons, and later in the Department's Bureau of Intelligence and Research um, as the Office of... Africa Analyst Director. As a native of New York, known for its greatness in its proximity to New Jersey, uh, Ms. Fitzgibbons attended Hartwick College and earned a master's degree from UC Davis, which is considered the Rutgers of the West. Miss um, Pamela Tremont. Miss um, Tremont was not, is nominated to be the U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of Zimbabwe, is a, also a career member of the Senior Foreign Service, uh, and you have, again, demonstrated patriotism, service, and leadership over the course of your career. Your most recent posting to the U.S. Embassy in Stockholm included an 18th month stint as the Chargé des Affaires. Ms. Tremont has a wide-ranging experience across multiple regions in substantive areas. She was assigned to the U.S. Embassy in Ukraine and served as deputy chief of mission of the U.S. Embassy in Cyprus. She has, not, she has also held positions in Washington related to NATO policy as well as overseas at the U.S. Embassy in Zambia. Ms. Tremont earned degrees from Baylor and the National Defense University. Mr. Richard Mills. Mr. Richard Mills' 30-year career in the Foreign Service includes tours in challenging security environments work on, in Sub-Saharan Africa, and experience leading large interagency teams. You uh, are the acting head of mission uh, to Canada and previously served as the US ambassador to Armenia. Your incredible service of patriotism uh, to your country uh, also includes overseas postings in Lebanon, Malta, Iraq, and the United Kingdom. Prior to joining the Foreign Service, uh, Mills was an attorney and received a law degree from the University of Texas. Um, Mr Mills currently serves as his US Deputy Representative to the United Nations, where he has a front row seat to witnessing Nigeria's diplomatic clout and the role and role on the world stage. As the President's nominee to the US Ambassador to Nigeria, uh, many of us are eager to hear your thoughts on Nigeria's recent elections and how you would work with the new government to advance US interests. And the final intro, last but definitely not least, Mr. Eric Needler, nominated to be US ambassador to Rwanda. You have the fortunate uh, distinction amongst this group of five of not being introduced by me, congratulations. Um, Instead, uh, we have uh, up on this screen, I'm gonna try to do this in timing, looking like I'm controlling this, like an orchestra conductor, we are going to hear from Senator Bob Casey of Pennsylvania. Roll the tape.
1: Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch, and members of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, thank you for the opportunity to speak in support of the nomination of a fellow Pennsylvanian and devoted civil servant, Eric Needler. Uh, Eric, thank you for your willingness to serve. I'd also like to thank Mr. Needler's family, his wife, Kristen, and two children, Torin and Ella, no one enters public service alone. The commitments of such a role mean public servants' families make sacrifices as well. The role of ambassador to Rwanda is a critical diplomatic position for the U.S. government. As both Rwanda and the United States form more perfect, representative, and inclusive unions, our continued partnership is vital. The United States is the largest bilateral supporter of Rwanda, and the Ambassador plays an important role in ensuring that those U.S. dollars do the most good they can for the Rwandan people. As Rwanda is one of the Feed the Future program's target countries, Mr. Needler will be implementing the Global Food Security Act on the front lines, fighting the root causes of hunger, poverty, and malnutrition while lifting up communities through agricultural development. Mr. Needler's quarter century of diplomatic experience makes him well equipped to strengthen the U.S. U.S.'s relationship with Rwanda. Most recently, he served as political counselor, chief of mission, and charge d'affaires in nearby Kenya for five years. While serving as charge uh, last October, Mr. Needler gave an important speech that made reference to people with disabilities. At the Inclusive Africa Conference, Mr. Needler talked about the need to build on the Americans with Disabilities Act and the Convention of Rights of Persons with Disabilities to, quote, unlock the hidden potential of every person to contribute to a brighter future for Africa, unquote. Every community from here to Rwanda is better off when people with disabilities are able to fully participate in their communities. Mr. Needler's service, his qualifications and experience have prepared him well to honorably represent U.S. interests abroad and prioritize the human rights of all people, including those with disabilities. And while his career has required Eric to leave Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania has never left him. Once a week during football season, you can find him awake in the middle of the night watching the Steelers. I strongly support Eric's nomination to, to be the next U.S. Ambassador to Rwanda, and thank you again for the opportunity to speak on his behalf. Uh, I'm sorry that he would mention
0: that you were a Steelers fan. I think you just lost four votes up here. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I, uh, I have to say that Mr. Hag- Senator Haggerty is relieved he is no longer the acting ranking member of this uh, committee hearing. Uh, he and I as junior senators now turn it to the far more experienced, the far more senior, uh, the wise, sagacious soul that is sitting to my left. Uh, I now bring you the ranking member, former chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, uh, Senator Risch.
2: Mr. Chairman, flattery will get you everything. Thank you very much. Well, I'll, well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. And uh, appreciate the merriment we're having here at the beginning with uh, some good interaction. But th- this is really serious. I mean, this, this panel is uh, made up of people who are going to very difficult places. And uh, I have a few things I want to uh, say on the record before we start. And I'm going to begin with the nomination of uh, Dr. Murthy uh, to be U.S. Representative to the World Health Organization. The WHO is a flawed organization. And I say that from experience. I dealt with them uh, deeply as the COVID uh, matter started. And the the pandemic was difficult, as we all know at the best. And I just simply wasn't getting out of what what I wanted. And I think most people saw what was happening there. The COVID-19 pandemic exposed critical weaknesses in the organization's structure and leadership. It failed to act quickly in response to the COVID-19 outbreak. And it yielded, this was the thing that really troubled me, it yielded to the Chinese pressure uh, installing the investigation. I remember I was shocked uh, when I talked to the head of the WHO and asked them how they went about this right at the beginning. And they went to China, but they were stuck in a hotel for two weeks before the Chinese would let them get out of their hotel to go look at what was going on. And the uh, WHO has failed to hold uh, China accountable for its lack of transparency. These failures contributed to the deaths of millions of people around the world. It put politics ahead of human health. The WHO has also been plagued by allegations, as we all know, of sexual exploitation and abuse, including in response to the Ebola outbreak in the Democratic uh, Republic of Congo. These unconscionable acts cannot be swept under the carpet. The WHO employees responsible for these crimes must be fired, banned from future service in the UN system, and held personally and criminally liable. Uh, um, There are apparently discussions going on between the White House regarding some kind of an agreement uh, on the pandemic, on any future uh, pandemic, with the WHO. Um, I'm disappointed that that the White House hasn't included me. I don't know if they've included the Democrat members. Uh, in these discussions, but uh, our side has not been included in this. Um, This is incredibly important that Congress be uh, read in on this. We certainly should be uh, uh, asked to approve any agreement that's entered into since it will be a treaty. I introduced a resolution this week that would ensure the Senate gets an appropriate opportunity to consider any such agreement. The administration should also refrain from increasing U.S. contributions to the WHO without targeted, verifiable reforms that ensure the WHO is properly tasked and fully accountable. If confirmed, uh, you will be responsible to hold a line on these principles. On the nomination of U.S. Ambassador to Zimbabwe, I'm appalled by the continued abuses of power, excessive corruption, and horrific human rights. A record by the country's leadership. These not only inhibit the U.S.-Zimbabwe uh, relationship, but also deprive the region of benefiting from a prosperous Zimbabwe. With elections expected this summer, we already see the Zimbabwean uh, regime taking the country down a dark and familiar path of electoral, of electoral violence, repression, uh, in, and impunity. Our Ambassador must hold firm in the support for the people of Zimbabwe, while committing to uphold U.S. values on human rights and and democracy and engaging the Zimbabwean government. I look forward to hearing uh, how Ms. Ms. Tremont plans to do this. On the nomination of U.S. Ambassador to Rwanda, this is always an important job on the continent, but even more so now that the U.S. has critical priorities where Rwanda can either be a constructive partner or an unhelpful constraint. Important issues include the regional conflict in Eastern Congo and the reengagement of M23 and other rebel groups. The Rwandan government's detention of U.S. permanent resident and recipient of the Presidential Medal of Freedom and also Rwanda's role in helping to stabilize northern Mozambique and central African Republic. I'm I'm keen to hear from uh, Mr. Needler about how he will confront the challenges while shaping a U.S. policy, policy in Rwanda that requires greater clarity and direction. Moving on to the nomination of U.S. Ambassador to Niger, uh, Ms. Fitzgibbon's most recent experience as Chief Deputy, excuse me, as Deputy Chief of Mission in uh, Nigeria is probably the best preparation one could get for this role. Both countries battle significant insurgent threats, are essential U.S. security partners, and face severe challenges to democracy, which can be overcome with commitment and support. The situation in the Sahel has deteriorated dramatically in the last few years, particularly with the coup in Mali and uh, Burkina Faso, and the entry of Russian-backed Wagner Group into Mali. I look forward to hearing how Ms. Fitzgimmons will support the U.S.-Niger security relationship while being a visible uh, proponent for developing resilient uh, democratic institutions in Niger. Finally, the nomination of U.S. Ambassador... To Nigeria, this country is undergoing a rapid transformation. We must commit to working with Nigeria to capitalize on opportunities to build its economy and democracy while confronting significant challenges like insecurity. Elections in Nigeria always serve as a vital test for Nigeria's democracy and have a lasting impact on the region. While the result of last Saturday's presidential election was announced today, it is clear that many of the technical and institutional challenges that have previously plagued Nigerian elections continued into this process. It is critical that Nigeria finds a path forward that serves the will of the Nigerian people. Mr. Mills have confirmed will need to lead U.S. efforts in Nigeria to support the uh, uh, development of strong democratic institutions, including political parties. Lastly, the human rights record of Nigeria's military gives us pause about how we provide the country with much-needed security assistance. Nigeria's partnership with the U.S. must include lasting solutions to seemingly unending human rights abuses. I look forward to hearing how Mr. Mr. Mills plans to approach these issues. So uh, again, I come back, Mr. Chairman, to the fact that this is a panel made up of of very qualified people to take these uh, issues on. I'm keen to hear from them how they're gonna do that. Uh, We don't often see a panel with as many challenges collectively as all of you have, but uh, we hope you're up to the task. Thank you for taking this on.
0: Thank you, Mr. Chairman. No, Mr. Ranking Member, thank you for your uh, opening remarks and for your insights into the challenges, as well as your affirmation of the qual- qualities of the people before me. We are now going to uh, open for open testimonies. So we're going to start uh, with Dr. Murthy, then we're going to go to Ms. Uh, Fitzgibbons, then Mr. Needler, then Mr. Tremont, and then the mighty Mr. Mills. Um, uh, I am going to have to run to the floor to vote. Um, should we get done with the opening testimony before our return? I doubt that will happen. You are very fortunate because the acting chairman of this committee will be the former chairman of the entire Foreign Relations Committee, dear friend who also I'm stuck between, I'm like the uh, Rutgers University between Harvard and Princeton here. Um, um, so, uh, who's I,
2: Harvard and who's Princeton?
0: Um, sir, you are whoever you want to be. <laughs> um, um, but uh, I will, I will uh, direct uh, Mr. Dr. Murthy to please uh, begin with your opening statement, sir. And to please take no disrespect for me turning my back on you and walking out. It's all good. I appreciate okay. that. All right, uh, Chairman Booker, uh,
3: Ranking Member Risch, and distinguished members of the committee, I am deeply honored for the opportunity to appear before you today as the President's nominee to serve as a representative of the United States to the Executive Board of the WHO. I would not be here today if it were not for the love and support of my wife and best friend, Alice Chen, my children, Tejas and Shanti, my sister and brother-in-law, Rashmi and Amit, My grandmother, Sarojini, and especially my parents, Hargare and Maitri Murthy. It was my father and mother who inspired me to become a doctor and to enter public service. I spent afternoons after school and on weekends in the small clinic that they ran in Miami, Florida. I was greeting patients and watching my parents at work. Over time, I came to see that healing was about more than diagnoses made and medicines prescribed. It was also about building relationships and empowering people with the tools necessary to keep themselves and their families healthy. Through their words and actions, my parents taught me that health is the most important investment that we can make. It is a foundation for prosperity and happiness. And I came to see that this was true, not only for individuals, but also for communities, nations, and for the world. This lesson became the foundation of my career in medicine and in public health. Nearly 30 years ago, it inspired me to launch Visions, an organization focused on HIV-AIDS prevention that organized youth-led workshops and trained students to be educators and community leaders. It's a lesson that guided me when launching the Swastia Community Health Partnership in rural India, which trained local young women to be community health workers and community leaders. It's informed the way I've cared for patients and their families over the years. And the lesson for my parents has also guided my work as Surgeon General. Over two terms, I've had countless conversations with fellow Americans to learn about their health concerns and needs. I've worked to advance solutions to opioid addiction, tobacco-related disease, mental illness, and other public health challenges. I've had the privilege of working with community organizations, government leaders of all levels and from both parties, and countless Americans to address global health threats that have impacted the United States, from Ebola and Zika to COVID-19. My experience is dealing with domestic and global health matters have made it clear to me that the health of Americans requires effective partnership and coordination with the rest of the world to ensure the early detection, rapid response, and containment of public health threats. This is a place where the World Health Organization has a vital role to play, and the United States must ensure that the WHO plays this role effectively. That's why my top priorities for this position, have confirmed, our strong governance at the WHO, and making sure we are better prepared for the next pandemic. Now, given the significant long-standing investment in the WHO by the United States, we have both the ability and the responsibility to demand clarity, transparency, and accountability in all WHO operations. That includes ensuring that the WHO uses its position to help build stronger and more resilient health systems around the world, that its approach to public health threats is rapid and robust, that resources are used responsibly, and that decision-making is transparent. It also means demanding that the WHO workforce be held to the highest ethical standards, and that there is a zero tolerance policy for abuse and exploitation that is enforced. Ensuring we are better prepared for the next pandemic will ensure the WHO, will require the WHO to see that the lessons of COVID-19 and prior infectious disease threats are in fact reflected in a clear strategy for addressing future pandemics, including effective surveillance and detection, rapid response, and sustained efforts to support recovery. It will also require successful engagement on negotiations currently underway to strengthen the international health regulations and develop a new pandemic accord to address broader gaps in pandemic preparedness. An effective WHO can help the world address not only future pandemics, but also ongoing public health challenges from maternal mortality, HIV, AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria, to non-communicable diseases and mental illness, which are robbing more and more people of their health, productivity, and fulfillment. Mental health is an area that I have focused on during my tenure as Surgeon General. It has become a global crisis, and I believe the United States is uniquely positioned to provide the empathetic, thoughtful, and urgent leadership that this issue demands, If I had the privilege of serving as U.S. Representative to the WHO Executive Board, it is my intention to strengthen America's voice and leadership on mental health on the world stage. I recognize this is a time of great challenge for America and the world when it comes to health, but I also believe we have a window of opportunity to strengthen our institutions and processes so we are more prepared than before COVID-19, and that is my guiding principle. I hope to have the opportunity to do so as U.S. Representative to the WHO Executive Board, working hand-in-hand with partners in Congress and across the administration. I thank you for your consideration of my nomination, and I look forward to your questions.
1: We're going to have a roving
4: chairmanship here until our chairman gets back. Uh, Mrs. Fitzgibbons.
5: Thank you. Mr. Acting Chairman, Ranking Member Uh, and distinguished members of the committee. I'm honored to appear before you today as President Biden's nominee to be the next ambassador to the Republic of Niger. I deeply appreciate the confidence and trust that the President and the Secretary of State have shown in nominating me for this position. And I thank you for your consideration. If confirmed, I look forward to working with Congress to advance our interests in Niger. My family members could not be here with me today, but because of their support, I'm sitting before this committee. My father, sisters and brothers, aunts and uncles and cousins are all watching from Bill's country in western New York, Virginia, and family outposts in North Carolina and Washington State. And my colleagues in Africa are watching, uh, represented here by Katie Donahoe from Team Nigeria. And then I also have behind me my desk officer from Team Niger. So I'm going to be traded from one team to the other, if confirmed. Uh, My mother and sister are no longer here with us, but they were important players in my story. My commitment to Sub-Saharan Africa began as a Hartwood College intern at InterAction, where I worked with non-governmental organizations and the Select Committee on Hunger, mustering support for the Ethiopian famine in 1984. This motivated my academic focus on African politics and development at the University of California at Davis, and teaching African politics at Mary Washington College in Fredericksburg, Virginia. These experiences enabled me to springboard into diplomatic service, which was a lifelong dream which seemed far out of reach from my small working class town of Caledonia, New York. I started my State Department career as a civil service officer and then converted into the Foreign Service thanks to a program initiated by Secretary Powell to make our diplomatic face abroad look more like America. My dream job has allowed me to be a participant at historic junctures in Nigeria, Chad, Uganda, Sierra Leone, Gabon, and Sao Tome Tome and Principe. These assignments built my experience in security, and counterterrorism, conflict resolution, refugee and migration affairs, trafficking in persons, human rights, democratic reforms, and commercial advocacy, as well as humanitarian and health diplomacy. I led interagency teams that managed U.S. government resources as deputy chief of mission in Gabon, Sierra Leone, Nigeria, and as charge d'affaires for a year in Sierra Leone during the West Africa Ebola crisis. In these positions, I mentored our next generation of diplomats so they too could have the skills they need to succeed. I also take very seriously my responsibility to protect American citizens overseas. Serving in Africa, I coordinated military and law enforcement activities during numerous situations of political unrest, terrorist threats, and kidnapping for ransom. In 2020, I secured Nigerian permission for a successful cross-border rescue of an American hostage. If confirmed, I will make use of these rich experiences to reinforce the strong partnership between Niger and the United States. Niger faces major terrorist threats on multiple borders and is a critical partner in our efforts to combat violent extremism and in strengthening democratic governance and adherence to international humanitarian law in West Africa. It's a linchpin of our rebalanced stabilization strategy for the Sahel, that seeks governance solutions to the security problems plaguing Niger and its neighbors. Our objective is to address Niger's many development deficits while strengthening its military capacity to restore the security necessary to defeat the terrorists on and within its borders. If confirmed, I will lead our interagency team's efforts to enhance the government's delivery of critical services in health, education, agriculture, food security, and the rule of law. Through these efforts, I will seek to deepen Niger's uh, democracy, provide economic opportunity, and and deny violent extremist organizations the ability to recruit neglected youth. Fundamental to our assistance strategy is the promotion and respect for human rights and humanitarian principles, for which I will be a relentless advocate. Early in my career, female activists told then-Secretary Albright that in Africa, poverty has a woman's face. These words resonate as a sobering reality in Niger. I look forward to working with President Bazoum who is prioritizing the betterment of women and girls as a major pillar of the country's economic development plan. Our USAID mission, which opened up after a 22-year absence, is a critical player in our whole-of-government approach to investing in the Nigerian people, especially women and girls. This long-term investment will require buy-in from Niger's political class, a challenge that I will gladly take up although I also understand local absorptive capacity could limit the pace of our progress. Finally, I will support inclusive democratic processes and transparency to strengthen the foundation of governance necessary to meet the aspirations of Niger's youthful population. Senators, the United States has an important role and stake in helping Niger succeed in its uphill battle. If confirmed, I look forward to leading US government efforts to consolidate Niger's democratic gains and create a secure environment in which Nigerians can prosper. Close coordination and consultation with Congress will be essential to achieving these goals. So Mr. Acting Chairman and Mr. Ranking Member, thank you for your opportunity to be here before you today and I look forward to your questions.
6: Thank you very much, Mr. Needler.
7: Acting Chairman, uh, Ranking Member, distinguished members of the committee, Uh, And a special thank you to Senator Casey for the very kind introduction. It is a tremendous honor and privilege to appear before you today as President Biden's nominee to be the U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of Rwanda. I am grateful to President Biden and Secretary Blinken for their confidence and trust. And if confirmed, I look forward to working with the committee and other members of Congress to strengthen the bilateral relationship for the benefit of both of our countries. Before I begin, I would like to take a moment to thank my wife, Kristen, who is also a U.S. diplomat and is with me here today, along with her sister, Kelly, for her unwavering support and partnership throughout our foreign service journey. It has been a true team effort from the beginning, and I would also like to thank our son, Torin, and daughter, Ella, for weathering the many moves and disruptions to their lives, mostly with good humor and a sense of adventure. I also want to thank my parents, Dick and Suzette, who are tuning in from Florida and taught me the importance of hard work and public service. I'd like to thank my sister, Rebecca, as well, who is watching in Arkansas, in addition to my aunt, Rebecca. I'm also grateful for the support of friends across the country and around the globe. And to the many State Department colleagues with whom I have had the pleasure of serving, particularly our locally employed staff, friends who keep our missions running, thank you. As this committee is well aware, this is an important moment in our relationship with Rwanda. There are significant ways in which U.S. and Rwandan policy views diverge. As Secretary Blinken noted during his visit to Kigali earlier this year or last year, the United States has concerns about the human rights climate in Rwanda and believes citizens in every country should be able to express their views without fear of intimidation, imprisonment, violence, or any other forms of repression. I would like to underscore that support for democracy, respect for human rights, and the rule of law remain cornerstones of U.S. policy in Rwanda. If confirmed, I will work tirelessly to promote freedom of expression, democratic governance, and access to justice, just as I have done at every stop of my 24-year career, including most recently as the charge d'affaires at our embassy in Nairobi. Since November of 2021, the violence in Eastern Democratic Republic of the Congo has caused significant human suffering. We appreciate Rwanda's engagement in the Nairobi and Luanda processes and urge Rwanda and all signatories to abide by the commitments in the November 23 Luanda communique. Given the legacy of the Rwandan genocide, we strongly condemn anti-Rwandaphone hate speech and any collaboration with armed groups which espouse genocide ideology. As we have noted publicly in various fora, however, there is evidence Rwanda has provided support to the UN and US-sanctioned M23 armed group responsible for much of the recent violence. And consistent with the Luanda communique, we call for an end to that support. If confirmed, I will use every tool at my disposal to help de-escalate tensions, promote respect for sovereignty and territorial integrity, and assist ongoing African-led mediation efforts. At the same time, the United States and Rwanda share many global, regional, and local priorities, and we have a broad partnership with the people of Rwanda. If confirmed, I would work to advance our cooperation with the government and people of Rwanda in many of these areas, including global health security, the economic and commercial relationship, environmental and climate issues, and peacekeeping. We are also now seeing the benefits of our decades of assistance helping Rwanda to strengthen its public health system. For example, Rwanda rapidly achieved one of the world's highest COVID-19 vaccination rates in part due to this longstanding assistance and the U.S. donation of over 7 million vaccine doses in partnership with COVAX. In addition, the United States and Rwanda have worked together to combat malaria and HIV AIDS. If confirmed, I look forward to building on these successes and advancing our shared health priorities. U.S. business interests in Rwanda are also expanding with private U.S. investment increasing in key sectors, including energy, water treatment, and telecommunications. Informal university partnerships also continue to grow between our two countries, and the only American research university with a full-time faculty and operations in Africa plans to expand opportunities at its Kigali campus. Meanwhile, over 1,200 Rwandans studied in the United States during the last academic year and 2,500 Rwandans are alumni of U.S. government-sponsored exchange programs. If confirmed, I will look for ways to advance U.S. values and promote our shared interests. Mr. Chairman, ranking member, members of the committee, thank you for the opportunity to appear before you today, and I look forward to your questions.
0: Thank you very much for that opening statement. We will now move on to Ms. Tremont.
8: Mr. Chairman, ranking member, distinguished members of this committee, it is the greatest honor of my 30-year diplomatic career to appear before you today as President Biden's nominee to be the next U.S. ambassador to the Republic of Zimbabwe. I am profoundly grateful to the President and Secretary Blinken for entrusting me with this tremendous responsibility. This nomination is a culmination of my family's public service to the American people. My parents, Lynn and Jan Donelsky, who are just behind me, instilled in me a spirit of public service through my father's 28-year Army career. They and my sister Stacy encouraged my dreams when, at the age of 16, I announced my future was in the U.S. Foreign Service. But I'm particularly indebted to my best friend and husband of 31 years, to this side, Eric Tremont, who has always prioritized me and our family above himself. I would not be here today without him and our 17-year-old son, Peyton, who has served alongside us in five countries, and who was one of the last Eagle Scouts out of Troop 980 in Kyiv, Ukraine. He's undoubtedly watching from the ski slopes in Europe, although he should be studying physics. (laughs) (laughs) My family's values and the support of many dear friends have been crucial along this journey, and they inspire me every day to seek diplomatic solutions to global challenges. Mr. Chairman and members of the committee, along that journey I've been privileged to represent the United States in eight countries across three continents, including seven years working on Southern African affairs. The common thread among people everywhere is a desire for representative governance that respects their human rights and offers them economic opportunity, free from corruption and supported by rule of law. In a word, they want dignity. And I firmly believe the Zimbabwean people want and deserve that too. Throughout my career, I have promoted these foundational values by supporting electoral assistance in countries such as the Comoros, Zambia, and Ukraine, where I headed electoral assistance to the 2019 presidential election, just months after Russia attacked Ukrainian ships which ushered in a period of martial law. Our assistance gave Ukrainians confidence in the electoral system to elect the leader of their choice. This year, Zimbabweans will go to the polls for the second time in the post-Mugabe period. Zimbabwe's constitution guarantees its citizens the right to choose their leaders through free and fair elections, to participate in political parties and organizations, and to campaign freely and peacefully. But too often Zimbabweans have been denied these rights and I share the committee's concerns over the increasing instances of political violence, intimidation, and lawlessness. The government of Zimbabwe has an opportunity to uphold its own constitution and deliver on President Monongagwa's yet to be realized commitment of peaceful democratic electoral processes. If confirmed, I will actively work to support the democratic aspirations of the Zimbabwean people and I will seek partnership with those in Zimbabwe who are doing the same. The US commitment to the Zimbabwean people is clear. Since we recognized the new state of Zimbabwe immediately after independence in 1980, the U.S. government has invested more than $4.5 billion in humanitarian aid and development assistance to the Zimbabwean people. Millions of Zimbabweans are alive today because of the PEPFAR program. Yet the potential of the Zimbabwean people is stymied by corruption, economic mismanagement, and a lack of investment in human capital that have undermined this former breadbasket of Africa the home of Great Zimbabwe. If confirmed, I will work with this committee to promote economic reform, rule of law, transparency, and women's empowerment to unleash Zimbabwe's economic potential and offer opportunities to U.S. business. Together, we can address poverty and food insecurity in Zimbabwe and the entire region. My highest priority will be the safety and security of Americans in Zimbabwe including the embassy staff and our local staff who have come under increasing pressure as a result of their employment with us. My leadership touchstone has always been that diverse teams, properly resourced in a secure environment can do anything, and I have always confronted harassment and discrimination head on. If confirmed, I will carefully steward US resources, hold my team to the highest possible standard, protect them at all costs, and empower them to work with Zimbabweans who share our goal of peaceful democratic nations working together to overcome global challenges. Thank you for your consideration and I look forward to your questions.
0: Thank you for that very strong opening statement. I'd like now to turn to the mighty Mr. Mills.
9: Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Ranking Member Reish and other members of the committee. It is an honor to appear before this committee once again as a nominee to represent the United States as one of her ambassadors. I'm joined today by my better half, my wife, Lee, who knows well the challenges and the satisfactions of diplomatic service, having served herself for three decades as a foreign service officer. I'm very thankful that if I'm confirmed, she will be with me in Abuja. And forgive me for
0: the unorthodox interruption, but where is your wife from, for the record?
9: uh, Good question. New Jersey, I believe. I'd also like to recognize my parents who are not from New Jersey but whose influence definitely inspired me to join the Foreign Service. They're not here with me today but they're with me in spirit. Like others on this panel, I am very grateful to President Biden and Secretary Blinken for the trust and the confidence they've shown in nominating me for this position. If confirmed for this challenging job, I will draw upon the experiences and skills gained from my 35-year career in the Foreign Service experience which Senator Booker has shared with the committee. Committee members, Mr. Chairman, this is a unique moment for US-Nigerian relations and for Nigeria as a whole. President Buhari is stepping down after his constitutionally limited two terms, as Senator Booker has already referenced. Overnight, Bolu Tanumbu was declared the winner of the election. I and the US government congratulate the people of Nigeria, President-elect Tanubu, and all political leaders on this competitive election. While I understand that many Nigerians and some of the parties have expressed frustration about certain aspects of how the process was conducted, there are well-established mechanisms in place to adjudicate electoral disputes and the U.S. government and I certainly encourage anyone seeking to challenge the outcome to use those mechanisms. We call on all parties, candidates, and supporters to continue to avoid any inflammatory rhetoric during this period. Going forward, this new government will be faced with many challenges, some of which Senator Risch has identified. How to beat back the threat from ISIS, Boko Haram, and other criminal elements in Nigeria how to reduce intra-communal strife in the country that has claimed the lives of far too many Nigerian Christians and Muslims, and how to harness Nigeria's vast oil wealth to improve the lives of its citizens. If confirmed, I'm committed to leveraging all elements of American diplomacy and foreign assistance to help Nigeria and its new government tackle these goals. A top US priority, and one for me, will be combating the insecurity that plagues the Nigerian people, with nearly all the country's 36 states experiencing some level of violence. From terrorism in the Northeast and elsewhere to criminal attacks in the Niger Delta to piracy off the coast, crime and insecurity are nationwide problems. If confirmed, I will continue our efforts to work with the Nigerian government to help professionalize its security services in order to create a professional Nigerian military and police force that respects human rights, can protect civilians, and hold those who do commit abuses to account. Finally, Nigeria is an important economic partner for the United States with over $10 billion in two-way trade between our nations. And the Nigerian economy itself, while still primarily reliant on oil, is increasingly diversified and, as the largest in Africa, offers real opportunities for mutually beneficial trade I look forward to leveraging the ingenuity of the American private sector, as well as our own Nigerian diaspora community here in the United States, to continue to improve the economic relationship between our two countries. And let me end by saying, for all this wealth from resources and trade, I know too little of it makes its way down to the average Nigerian. Illegal oil bunkering and criminality in the Niger Delta limits the ability of Nigeria to benefit from its natural resources and endemic corruption throughout the country further limits the ability of all Nigerians to profit from their nation's wealth. If confirmed, I will continue to press the Nigerian government to tackle corruption and improve the rule of law. Mr. Chairman, ranking Member, members of the committee, when I appeared before this committee eight years ago to be confirmed as the US ambassador to Armenia, I committed to working transparently with committee members to advance American interests in Armenia and overseas I renew that commitment to you and your staffs today, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you.
0: I think the thanks is ours. Um, Ranking member and I have known each other for about 10 years now, and there's things we disagree on, but one thing we both agreed on as you all were speaking, we have a lot of humility of, as we sit before, career diplomats who've dedicated themselves to what you do, and as a result, your whole family has made this extraordinary dedication. This is how we're gonna roll now, if you all don't mind. Um, I'm going to ask some perfunctory uh, questions, or should I say some technical questions. Um, Then I'm going to hold my policy questions and let Mr. Risch, out of respect, uh, start the questioning. Uh, If no uh, Democrats show up, I'm going to let Mr. Rickards go second, actually, and then I'll I'll save my policy questions for the end. But as far as the procedural questions, uh, um, I'd like to ask uh, each of you should just answer yes or no. Uh, and directly, we can just go down the line starting with Dr. Murthy um, or General Murthy or however you'd like to be recalled, my friend. Dr. General, Mr. Mur- Vivek is fine. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm informal. Um, we'll start with you and we'll just go down. Um, do you agree to appear before this committee and make officials from your office available to the committee and designate staff when invited? Yes.
8: Yes. Yes. Yes, Senator.
0: Yes. Do you commit to keep this committee fully and currently informed about the activities under your preview? Yes. yes. Yes.
8: Yes.
7: Yes, sir.
0: Do you commit to engaging in meaningful consultation while policies are being developed, not just providing notification after the fact? Yes. 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 Do you commit to promptly responding to the requests for briefings and information requested by this committee and its designated staff? Yes. 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 All right. Well, I say thank you for that. Uh, and again, I'll reserve my questioning for the end. I want to be, uh, give deference to my colleagues. And with that, I ask a ranking member, Risch, uh, for his questions.
2: Oh, thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman. And I, I join in your uh, uh, humble appreciation for the, uh, the cast that we're looking at today. Uh, your, your resume, your collective resume is, uh, is indeed impressive. Uh, Dr. Murphy, I, I want to talk to you a little bit about the WHO. You know, you heard me in my opening statement talk about how uh, staggered I was as, at their incompetence. When uh, I, admittedly, uh, I, I had never worked with them before on anything, and when uh, COVID raised its ugly head, we needed help, and we needed help badly. And the place we turned to was the WHO, and, and I, I was just blown away at the incompetence that that I, I ran into there. Um, what uh, it, it needs reform. It needs lots of different stuff. Uh, what What are your thoughts on how you're going to approach that?
3: Well, thank you, Senator. And uh, I must say, uh, your statements at the opening about your concerns uh, about the WHO, about the need for it to be effective and competent at what is, it does, uh, I think I understand those, and, and I share uh, a deep concern uh, for the status quo uh, being continued. I think we've got to make things better. Here's how I think about it, sir. Uh, I think one of the things that we've got to focus on is accountability at the WHO. We are the biggest investor uh, in the WHO, and the real question is, are we delivering the value for the American people that those dollars should get? Uh, I don't think we're there yet. I think we need to know that the WHO has transparency when it comes to how funds are being used, that we have clarity about goals, what those goals are, what the timeline is on which they are being accomplished. I think we also need transparency in decision-making, which has not always been there. And finally, we need workforce accountability. Uh, The allegations of sexual exploitation and abuse, these are horrifying. Uh, There should be no tolerance uh, for that kind of behavior from any organization, much less one entrusted uh, with the safety and the health and well-being of people around the world. But I also think, sir, when it comes to pandemic preparedness, uh, the world needs to be able to rely on the WHO to function and function well, both during a pandemic, but also beforehand to help prevent the next one and ensure we're prepared. And that means setting up the kind of surveillance and rapid alert systems and transparent data sharing uh, that we need but don't quite have yet. It means having a robust, rapid response, ensuring that we have the ability to manufacture and distribute countermeasures uh, around the world uh, so that everyone can benefit from the discoveries and scientific advances that, that ultimately help us get through pandemics. So, these are some of the areas where I believe we need to focus. That is why my priority, if I have the privilege of serving, sir, would be to focus specifically on these two areas of pandemic preparedness uh, and better governance and transparency at the WHO. And I would look to do that uh, both in my voice at executive board meetings, working in consultation and partnership uh, with you and other members of this committee, and with partners in the State Department, USAID, and our Department of Health and Human Services.
2: Well, I think you got that exactly right. I think both of those areas of focus are incredibly important, uh, particularly um, uh, the uh, preparation for the next one. After we've been through this uh, as a world, uh, we know the the, the, the heartache and, and the issues that this causes, and uh, th- there's there's no reason we shouldn't be prepared, much more prepared for the next one, Also getting uh, accurate information one of the things I get most from constituents is they, they, they really don't believe they got accurate information from the very beginning. They still don't think they're getting uh, accurate information. And that's, and, and uh, sometimes you just don't uh, know, and it's better to say that than to try to give information that, uh, that, that misleads people. Um, anyway, thank you for that. I, I think you got that right. Um, my time's short, but I do want to, um, I, I do want to ask... Because of the pool of talent we have here, uh, uh, I, I do want to ask, I I get reports regarding the Sahel. I, I'm, I'm also a senior Republican on the Intelligence Committee, so I get it here and I get it there. And it's been one of the most disheartening things for me is to watch how the Sahel has deteriorated uh, in recent years. Part of it, of course, is because of our success in the Middle East. We drove a lot of the terrorists out of there. Where'd they go? They went to uh, the next weakest link in the chain and that was the Sahel. And uh, uh, it it looks to me, I could be wrong on this, but it looks to me like it's gonna be even tougher in the Sahel because of the weakness of the governments there and the corruption and everything else that's there. It's gonna be even more difficult there to take on the terrorism uh, issue that we've had to deal with in in the Middle East it's, somebody help me out here. Give me some optimistic view, and if not, uh, how how we're going to do that? Um, y- you all have a, you all have a tremendous resumes. Who wants to take a shot at this?
5: My team is throwing me under the bus. Yeah, there you go.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Been there.
5: <laughs> it's very interesting. We do need to make a, a more concerted effort, not to just focus on security assistance, which is very important and vital. We need to keep our security assistance to countries like Niger. Um, but more importantly is we need to help reinforce state legitimacy with their people. We've got to make sure that governments are making those connections and that service delivery is happening. Um, you know, in order, and fighting corruption is very important in that. But even more important is people need to feel that their government is protecting them and their uh, government is providing for them. And if that's not happening, these youngsters, in Niger in particular, 70% of the population is, is youth and they're very, very uh, easily led astray by uh, violent extremist organizations. So without, we have to have that total whole whole of government, uh, we call it the 3Ds, you know, defense, democracy, diplomacy and development package to make sure that we are trying to alleviate the conditions that are creating the recruitment uh, or the recruits for those organizations. But we still do need to undergird that with security assistance. Uh, I know that Niger is right now, in Nigeria, the two countries still standing as democracies in the region, Um, and we need to work more closely together between those countries uh, and ECOWAS to strengthen the institutions, the security apparatus to fight terrorism, but also to fight terrorism and make sure that the next elections in Niger, which are coming in a few years, that we're working towards that now. We can't just wait till an election comes and then have a crisis and a military coup happen.
2: With the increase uh, that we've had uh, in in terrorist activity in the Sahel, do you think the countries are getting any better in dealing with that uh, on a positive basis, or are they they just accepting it? What's your view of that?
5: My experience has been um, Nigeria is getting better at it. Uh, Part of it is some of the foreign military sales that we've made to Nigeria that's making them more uh, attuned to uh, being precise in their attacks um, and also more collaboration with the neighbors and and information sharing. In Nigeria's case, I think our partner uh, capacity that we've been building is doing a good job for them. The most recently trained U.S.-trained unit just went to uh, the border with Benin, so they're actually positioning those troops where they should be, not keeping them back in Niamey. They're putting them out on the front line. So uh, in Niger, I think we're making, uh, making progress. In the other countries in the Sahel, you know, with the military takeovers that we've had, I would argue that we're, that we're not. Uh, the other thing in Niger is that they're very much against uh, the incursion of Russian uh, organizations like Wagner, uh, they're very uh, tuned to what's happening in Benin and Burkina Faso. So, uh, bolstering their resolve and bolstering their capacity to protect their borders and be able to be a beacon in the region for what democracy can bring to their people is the way we have to go.
2: Well, thank you. I, I appreciate your, uh, you know, your thoughts on that. And uh, my time is way past up. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh,
0: we, we have a light attendance today, so you should feel uh, comfortable doing that. I'm going to turn uh, to Senator Van Hollen. Uh, thank you,
6: Mr. Chairman, and uh, thank all of you for your service. Uh, congratulations on your, your nominations um, to these ambassadorial positions. And, and just, um, Ms. Fitzgibbons, I I just um, returned from a trip along with some of my colleagues from this committee, Senator Menendez, Senator Kuhn, Senator Graham from another committee, and one of our stops was Niger. They may have already discussed it in this uh, hearing, but um, I just want to underscore your statement. I do think that we need to be doing more. Uh, to support Niger. Uh, while we were there, our, our country team and uh, folks on the ground indicated that there were requests for certain additional helicopters and things like that. Uh, and given what's happened in Mali, Burkina Faso, Faso I, I just think that that's a, a, a priority, as you know. Um, Ambassador Miller, um, thank you for your earlier service um, in Armenia, among other posts. Uh, I I know you've uh, discussed the election that just uh, took place in Nigeria, uh, and I know you also mentioned in your testimony here the issue of endemic corruption uh, in Nigeria, uh, which is really holding the country back in many, many uh, ways uh, when it comes to any kind of uh, confidence of investors in the economy. Can you just talk about what your plan would be uh, to uh, address uh, that issue?
9: Thank you, Senator. Yes, I I think my experience, the number one question I hear from U.S. business and investors is what is the corruption situation in Nigeria? What's being done to address it? The mission in Nigeria has a a full range of programs designed to promote anti-corruption activities. We also address it at the highest levels. And it certainly, as I said in my statement, will be a priority for me. The mission supports the Department of Justice efforts to claw back a lot of the uh, legally obtained resources that are overseas in the United States, including those that um, came during the, the presidency of President Obacha. And a lot of those clawed back resources, when they come back, are put directly into programs and infrastructure to benefit the Nigerian people themselves. In my experience dealing with the issue of corruption, which is pervasive, and in many places that I've served, and can happen anywhere, is that it's important to identify local voices, people in the country that will speak out against corruption. You often hear, I heard it in several of the places I've served, this is our system. This is our culture. Um, don't, Don't imply sort of impose your values on how we do business here. So I find it most valuable to identify and amplify those voices in the culture who say no, corruption is not part of our culture. This is not how we do business. So I think that'll be a real emphasis for me in Nigeria.
6: Well, no, I appreciate that. And I think, um, look, uh, the election results are in. I know some people are asking questions, but uh, we we know that there's a history of um, you know, corruption among uh, many of the players who were involved in the election. Um, so I, I wish you the best and look forward to staying in touch with you on that. Um, Mr. Uh, Gneedler, um congratulations uh, to you as well. Lots of issues uh, to cover in Rwanda. Uh, look forward to continuing our conversation on the M-23 uh, threat uh, in the eastern part of Congo and Rwanda's role in that. Uh, But I I want to ask you about uh, the decision that was made in in May uh, by the State Department uh, when they categorized the Rwandan government's arrest and imprisonment of Paul rusesab Bageno, who, of course, is known to many Americans uh, through the, the portrayal uh, in Hotel Rwanda, um, a legal permanent resident of the United States, uh, as a wrongful detention. So how would we, uh, h- how do you propose to address that issue? Because I think many of us, um, former Senator Leahy, myself and others, have been following this case closely.
7: Sure. Thank you very much, uh, Senator, for the question. I've been following Mr. Begina's case uh, very closely. As you noted, the State Department uh, determined that he was wrongfully detained last year. The State Department has also uh, outlined concerns about the lack of free trial guarantees observed during the course uh, of his trial and convention, uh, in conviction rather, um, and, and also underscored the importance of ensuring that he is afforded every legal protection going forward. So Senator, if confirmed, uh, I would look forward to working with members and staff uh, from this committee. Uh, with his family, uh, with our Special Envoy f- uh, for Hostage Affairs, who has the lead on this case, to do everything possible uh, to resolve this case as quickly as possible.
6: I appreciate that. As you know, there are also um, a lot of concerns about the Rwandan government's um, tactics of harassing and even reports of uh, sometimes killing dissidents abroad. So uh, I think uh, we, we've we got a lot, um, a lot of work to do in this particular area. Look forward to, to working you and I thank all of you for your service and uh, look
0: forward to supporting all of your
6: confirmations.
0: Thank you very much, Senator Van Hollen. I apologize uh, to Senator Ricketts. I thought you were gonna be second in questioning. You're now been bumped back to fifth, man. And, and I'm the new guy, I get it. I, I appreciate that, but I respect you deeply, not just because you're my fellow colleague, but because you've got the best haircut on this entire uh, <laughs> panel. So I would like to go uh, to Mr. Haggerty, please. Thank you. Um, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and my apologies,
10: uh, Senator Ricketts. Uh, but I appreciate um, the opportunity to to discuss a topic that's very disturbing to me, and I think perhaps to all of us here. And I'd like to start with you, Dr. Murthy. Um, I wanna ask you if you believe that China should be held accountable for any of its malfeasance during the COVID pandemic, including their stonewalling, the lying, misleading the world about the pandemic's origin and its spread, I just appreciate a simple yes or no answer.
3: Well, yes, Senator. I think it's important for all countries to be held accountable, when, well, especially for lack of transparency.
10: I, I would say the country that it, where the origin started is the one I'm focused on right now. Next question. Do you believe that the World Health Organization should be held accountable for initially covering up the possibility that COVID came from a Chinese lab leak? And again, I'd appreciate a yes or no answer here. Well, Senator,
3: yes, I do believe accountability is important with the WHO as well when it comes to COVID origins?
10: I I absolutely agree. Their performance in this uh, regard was absolutely pathetic. They were late to the game and they were very quick to dismiss the possibility that this leak came from the Wuhan lab. Specifically in February of 2021, more than a year after COVID emerged, a WHO investigation team finally gets there. And then they almost immediately determined that it was, quote, extremely unlikely that COVID came from the Wuhan lab and they recommended against further investigation. Yet according to news reports, the Department of Energy's Office of Intelligence and Counterintelligence just recently joined the FBI in assessing that COVID likely originated from a lab leak in China. I'd also note that the Energy Department's intelligence arm employs actual biologists, virologists, and other scientists in this regard. Moreover, just yesterday, FBI Director Ray publicly reiterated that COVID most likely came from Wuhan lab. So Dr. Murthy, do you think it's extremely unlikely that COVID came from a lab leak in China?
3: Well, Senator, thank you for raising this issue. I think there is currently a range of opinions, as I understand it, in the intelligence community about the origins of COVID-19. The lab leak theory is one of those possibilities. And I don't think it's proper to discount a theory until it has been properly investigated. I could not
10: agree with you more.
3: My big concern, though, is the lack of transparency that we have had from China when it comes to gathering the information needed to actually get to the bottom. Uh, of that story and to do a complete investigation we that has hear, integrity. We
10: share that concern, yet the WHO was more than willing to write this off and let the, let, let the uh, CCP get away without revealing you know, base data uh, and, and to quickly dismiss this. Given the recent DOE and FBI reports, do you believe that the WHO report was actually wrong to conclude that the lab leak was extremely unlikely and to recommend against any further investigation? Well, I think it's
3: clear that further investigation is needed. And that's something that President Biden has been clear on, that is when he directed the intelligence and community to double Clearly, the report down.
10: was wrong. Mm-hmm. Clearly, it was premature to shut down further investigations into the lab leak theory. Mm-hmm. The WHO is alarmingly close to the CCP, and the previous administration rightly withdrew from that organization. Despite all of this, President Biden unconditionally rejoined the WHO immediately after taking office. The United States is now, again, the WHO's WHO's largest donor. We're paying them more than $400 million per year. So, Dr. Murphy, do you trust China to be a good partner to the United States the next time we have a pandemic?
3: Well, I think we've got to ensure that there is accountability that comes through systems. It means that the money we give, Senator, the money you referenced, should not be a blank check to the WHO. It should come with assurances that the reforms that we are seeking are actually happening. And look, in this, one of the things we learned from COVID-19... That was well, we didn't
10: get any assurances when we agreed to come back into the WA organization. Did you, have you got new information from me that we got assurances from the WHO when we agreed to come back in?
3: Well, I do think being a part of the WHO and engaging with them is the best way to change them. And so to we step back up to the be better. the
10: largest donor, yet we've got, as far as I know, no guarantees that they're going to reform. Certainly their performance doesn't support this. Uh, I think it's something that's, that's deeply, deeply concerning. There's another area, though, that I'm deeply concerned about, and this has to do with, with our sovereignty. So I want to ask you this question as well. Should the United States ever, under any circumstance, cede its sovereign, sovereign policymaking authority, for example, to the CCP during a pandemic?
3: No, Senator, we should read I agree to... with you.
10: I, didn't think, I, I think that's correct. Next question, though. Which is closely related to this, then should the United States ever, under any circumstance, cede its sovereign policy making authority to the WHO? We should
3: retain our sovereignty when it comes to making decisions for the American people's health and well
10: being. I very much appreciate that answer. Uh, I'm also very concerned, as you know, the Biden administration is actively negotiating with other countries right now on a new agreement on global pandemic response that will give the WHO greater influence and control. This is a draft of the agreement. So, Dr. Murphy, if if confirmed, I just would like to know if you'll commit to me and to this committee that you'll not participate in any effort to enter into any international agreement that would give the WHO greater control over future American pandemic responses. And again, I'd appreciate a yes or no answer. Well,
3: Yes, Senator, I I can assure you that one of my guiding principles will be maintaining American sovereignty in our decision-making. Um, we know our people the best, we know what our people need uh, here in America, and we've got to have and retain always the ability to make decisions So I can Americans. take that
10: as a commitment that you will not cede greater control to the WHO over, over pandemic response here in America through the course of this agreement or any other?
3: No, I, w- I will always seek to retain our sovereignty when it Is comes to our yes health. Is that a yes or no need. answer? It's, it's what I said, Senator. I will strive to retain our sovereignty. That's important. I don't want to I, see that to anyone.
10: I, I certainly would hate to see our sovereignty being given away in this agreement. Mr. Chairman, I'd just like to enter this document into the record. Without objection. Thank you Mr. Mu- very much, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Dr. Martha.
0: Thank you. I turn now to Senator Coons. I am the uh, chairman of the Africa subcommittee, but this is the, uh, in many ways, expert on issues regarding Africa. So, sir, would you please take us to a higher level?
11: I wish I could. Uh, Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Actually, the experts are the people in front of us, uh, folks who have served and will serve for long periods of time in the field and many uh, who are with you. Uh, I appreciate the compliment, but I am undeserving. I'm confident of that. Um, Having just returned uh, alongside uh, Senator Van Hollen and a bipartisan group um, from a visit to a number of countries, uh, I think this has already been brought up, um, I just want to start by expressing my deep gratitude to each of you Uh, to your families, uh, for your willingness to continue to serve our country in a number of uh, contexts that are very challenging. Um, So let me get to it and try to be brief if I can. Dr. Murthy, it's great to see you again. Um, I know it is somewhat unprecedented for there to be a requirement for a a separate hearing for WHO representation, but you've just heard some of the reasons why there are um, heightened concerns. Uh, I greatly appreciated your coming to Delaware and to visit some of our young people, our healthcare professionals, and to talk about Uh, how we move forward here domestically, your previous experience um, in this role and in other roles in the U.S. Public Health Service Commission Corps, I think makes you abundantly qualified for this position. I hope you were promptly confirmed. If you would like to just take one more minute and talk about how you would promote U.S. interests at the WHO, if confirmed, I would appreciate that.
3: Well, thank you so much, Senator Coons, and uh, thank you again for the invitation to come to Delaware. Uh, and I really enjoyed and learned a lot from my visit there. Uh, you know, in in my view, Senator, as as you know well, our health and well being in the United States does depend on what happens elsewhere in the world. We saw that with COVID. We've seen that with other infectious disease threats. In order, my privilege as Surgeon General has been to look out for the health and well being of Americans, and that, to me, involves in some ways a, a natural extension into this role. If I'm privileged to have the opportunity to serve in it. Uh, which is to work on the global stage to also safeguard the health and well-being of Americans. How we do that means that we've got to ensure that we have better collaboration, coordination, and transparency with other governments. And that includes in the areas of data surveillance and data sharing. It means we need uh, early detection systems, but we also need rapid response uh, operations. Again, a place where the WHO needs to have have an, an effective role. But it also means that when it comes to the production of countermeasures, Senator, uh, we know again that all of us are better off when the entire world is better off and when the entire world has access to countermeasures like vaccines and therapeutics. And so part of the work I believe that we need to to push and engage the WHO on is the work of ensuring that we have adequate production and distribution capacity when it comes to manufacturing and distributing these countermeasures. To me, these are all parts of what we need to do to ensure we are prepared for the next pandemic. But finally, I'll say this, Senator, we need an effective WHO, not just for pandemic preparedness, but for many of the other health threats that we are facing. And for the WHO to be effective there, it has to be credible, uh, which means it needs to be able to deliver uh, on promises. It needs to be transparent in decision-making. And its workforce also has to adhere to the highest ethical standards. And those are the issues, again, that I hope to focus on if I have the opportunity to serve.
11: Terrific. Thank you very much. Part of our trip was celebrating uh, the accomplishments of 20 years of PEPFAR launched by President Bush, the single largest public health intervention in world history, which has saved more than 25 million lives. Uh, Its path forward uh, will in no small part come through this committee. Um, And we got to see, for example, in the country of Zambia, um, how significant investment by the United States has saved huge numbers of lives. In South Africa, the same. Um, So I hope to work with you both on uh, pandemic prevention, but also in celebrating some of the ways in which our investments in public health infrastructure um, on the continent of Africa and elsewhere in the developing world have made us safer and have helped uh, avoid uh, preventable deaths. Um, if I could, two more questions. Ms. Fitzgibbon, um, just interested in what you think of the stability of the Bazoom government. Um, our uh, time in Niger was uh, disconcerting, um, and they are, uh, I would say, an island of stability in a region uh, beset by chaos. I'm very concerned about uh, Russia's presence and the way in which Wagner has um, taken a more and more aggressive posture uh, to the east and west of Niger. I'd be interested in how you think we could successfully counter Russian disinformation, which has had an impact in all of the countries to which you're nominated to serve, um, and how we might more successfully engage the people of Niger uh, and the Sahel region in a way that would um, promote uh, stability.
5: Thank you for that question. Uh, we have answered the government's request for help on disinformation, whether it's Russian disinformation or Chinese disinform- disinformation. Our senior bureau official for uh, public affairs went out to Niger in November. Uh, we've brought down experts to help strengthen um, the uh, journalistic infrastructure, so to say, so that to help the journalists understand better how uh, journalistic integrity is very important to putting word out to uh, whatever information they're putting out. Um, and then we have helped point out to them when we see disinformation. And to, to all that end, uh, China has put on a big PR blitz in Niger, uh, but its actual uh, popularity ratings are going down despite how much money it's putting into there. So something is working there. Uh, part of it, I'd like to say, is uh, you know, our U.S. Embassy's uh, uh, public affairs program and reaching out to people, our people-people, to relations are working. Um, and with Wagner, uh, we have a strong ally in President Bazoum on Wagner. Uh, the smallest of our Ds, as uh, we were talking about a little bit earlier, um, is is our democracy funding. But one of the things we can make up for that with is diplomatic engagement. And I intend to work very hard, and I've done this in every country I've served in, with the political elite to make them understand that there are a lot of political trade-offs that need to be made for the long-term stability of the country and the economic and social investments that need to be made in Niger need to be made now. And that means the opposition and members of the ruling party and aspirants to be the next president of Niger need to have that buy-in because if if, uh, the country's stability is at risk and the time is now, the attention from the United States and the attention from other donors is now too. So this is the time that that the country can benefit most. Uh, And I believe that President Bazoum has that commitment. Um, and we will make sure that uh, we're talking frankly to him when we see things uh, that might be done better. So I'm hoping to have a good relationship there.
11: Um, I look forward to hearing from you. Could I beg the indulgence of one more question, Mr. Chairman? He's distracted. Um, So if I could, Ambassador Mills, um, I I am interested in each of your countries. I apologize, but I'm already out of time. Um, You will represent us in Abuja in um, one of the most populous countries in the world. Um, a real linchpin for West Africa and its stability, um, and where the outcome of the election, um, you know, I think is is leading to some widespread disappointment amongst those who'd hope for change, um, and the possibility for real continuity. Um, what what do you expect out of the Tinubu government? What do you think his previous service as governor of Lagos State, if I'm not mistaken, um, is going to lead to? Um, and how do we build um, a more stable, sustainable relationship between the United States and Nigeria? given some of our issues in terms of the conduct of the Nigerian Armed Forces, um, internal division, um, and the very strong and robust diaspora community here in the United States. Sorry.
9: Um, And in a way, that's the answer. It's a holistic approach. It's uh, if we're going to deepen the relationship, which is actually quite strong. We have quite an engaged relationship with Nigeria across the board, economically, diplomatically, culturally. we have to use all the tools, as I mentioned in my statement. Um, in terms of the election, uh, I would point out that there was some good news from the election. Um, candidates, The top three candidates each won over 12 states in the, the election, which is, which is new. And I think that reflects the diversity of the political system there and a lot of new voices taking part in this election. That's very encouraging. I think if President-elect Tanubo is listening he knows that there was a great demand for change. Uh, the, the campaign that in many ways supported the candidacy of Peter Obi, a lot of young people came out and I think he will be aware of that. We certainly will remind him of the need to be responsive to that moving forward. In terms of our priorities, you know, we've longed for a long time, our work in Nigeria, guided by the administration's Africa, policy african strategy and the, the mission's own strategy has focused on really four key areas that we're engaged on improving security nigeria is a counterterrorism partner we have to improve their ability to fight the terrorism threat that they are facing working to develop the economy through mutually beneficial trade human rights huge huge issue that we need to promote and we need to increase accountability and the transnational issues that the doctor mentioned. Nigeria's a partner in transnational health issues yes. and crime issues. So those are, are our priorities, I think. You mentioned security in particular. And to get to um, Senator Rish's question about the Sahel, I think in some ways there is a success story in Nigeria. Um, the last couple of years, as Kathleen knows well, we have sold to the Nigerians at their request some important military precision munitions and aircraft. Those aircraft in the last two years have made a difference in their ability to fight the terrorism threat, especially in the Northeast. It's reduced those precision munitions, civilian casualties. And I think more importantly, and this is the secret, we sold these weapons and nested inside this sale were important human rights components, important new steps. We said, if if we're going to share these weapons, sell these weapons to you, you need to take these actions. Everything from new air-to-ground integration teams that have really reduced civilian casualties uh, wherever the Air Force is working in Nigeria. But we've put in a military justice advisor. We've put in a new uh, advisor into how to work with the civilian communities. And I think that's a real model for moving forward. And that'll be a priority moving forward to continue monitoring that and building on that.
11: Thank you. It's a complex issue. I appreciate your answer. I've been to Borno State. I've been to Nigeria several times. I look forward to staying in touch with you, and I apologize for, for running over. Please, uh, Mr. Needler, Ms. Tremont, give my regards to President Kagame and President Mangagwa, um, and thank you to all of you and your families for your willingness to serve.
0: Uh, Senator Koons's 12 minutes of questioning uh, represent uh, the grandeur of his mastery of these issues, um, but I am now happy to turn to Senator Young.
12: I'll try and keep mine a concise 10 minutes or so. (laughs) Thank you. All right. Um, I I welcome all our panelists, congratulate uh, each of you for uh, your your nominations and and we'll look forward to serving with most or all of you uh, in the future on behalf of our country. Um, Dr. Murthy, as you know, uh, the United States lost more than a million lives uh, due to COVID equally as concerning Uh, are the effects of the pandemic on untold millions of children from education to socialization to mental health. Uh, It's clear, Doctor, that the United States has a vested interest in the renegotiation of uh, the World Health Organization's pandemic response policies to mandate transparency and cooperation during the next pandemic, which uh, undoubtedly will occur. If confirmed, sir, uh, you'll have a, a central role in ensuring that our country and our children are protected from malfeasance during future health emergencies. Dr. Murthy, do you support the proposed draft agreement as currently written, and if confirmed, what specific changes to the regulations will you propose to mitigate the damage during the next public health crisis? Well, thank you, Senator, uh, for the, that question.
3: And uh, let me just say at the start that I, I really appreciate you bringing up the impact this pandemic has had on our children uh, and on mental health more broadly, because the impact has been profound. Uh, I've seen that in my own family, uh, and I've certainly seen that in my community. Um, and it's one of the reasons why I feel very strongly uh, that I want to do everything I can to ensure we are better prepared for the next pandemic, because there is a lot of stake, most importantly, our children. Uh, A few things that I think would be important that I would look to focus on when it came to the pandemic preparedness, as you you noted. One is to ensure that we have the early detection capabilities and early data sharing. That's so vital to understanding when a threat is emerging. Uh, If we had had that in place uh, effectively uh, this past time around with COVID, I dare say we may have been in a better place. But the second thing that we need is to be able to mobilize a rabbit. Could I just
12: interject? Of course. It's an important point. Yeah. um, Is it it accurate to say that we would have had a lot more lead time or or we gave up some valuable lead time uh, to prepare to harden ourselves by producing or sourcing PPE, uh, by uh, protecting people, uh, uh, against the virus, which presumably if you had the data would have had a better chance of, of identifying the nature of the virus. Yeah. It would have saved countless lives. Uh,
3: y- y- short yeah. answer is y-
12: yes, Senator. Yeah, yeah it's,
3: I think the benefits of longer lead time are both in preparation from a materials perspective, but also scientifically that gives scientists a head start on trying to understand and collaborate on understanding what the actual pathogen is and then starting the process of developing countermeasures. So that's absolutely right. So that early detection, that surveillance, that data sharing is really critical. Uh, What we also need to do though, uh, is ensure that we have the ability to respond in terms of countermeasures. That's both in the development of countermeasures, but also in the production and distribution of those countermeasures. This is a challenge we had during COVID-19. How do we, it's one thing to develop a vaccine, it's another to manufacture it and distribute it at scale to everyone who needs it. Um, and that's a place also where we have to work hard uh, because as we saw with COVID-19, COVID is is not immutable, it changes, it mutates. And the more uncontrolled spread there is, the more mutations they are, the more dangerous variants can develop and that can come back to hurt us as has happened several times during this pandemic. Uh, finally, I'll just say, Senator, again, to come back to something you raised in the beginning about mental health. I think as we think about our own country and our response to this, this is part of the longer, tail the the deeper consequence of COVID-19 that we have to grapple with and one of the reasons that I have been so focused on mental health and well-being in my work as Surgeon General one of the reasons why I also want to make mental health part of our focus on the global stage is because we're not alone in those struggles a lot of countries are struggling with the mental health impact of COVID-19 that's
12: part of how we have to respond to this pandemic and be prepared for the next. Thank you doctor. I, I, I uh, everything you said makes great sense. You mentioned relationship building as a key factor uh, in, in negotiations and in cooperation from member states during the next global high, uh, health crisis. It was something that you, you underscored in your uh, written testimony. Uh, Two part question. Do you believe that r- relationship building will be sufficient? It may be necessary, but will it be sufficient to tackle uh, the next global pandemic. It seems to me, uh, and this is the second part of the question, that uh, we should be supporting some sort of regulations that establish punitive consequences from, uh, uh, from uh, governments that, that uh, don't comply uh, with or cooperate with other countries uh, during such emergent circumstances.
3: Yes, Senator, I'm glad you raised this. I'd say relationships are necessary but insufficient on their own to generate the results that we want. The relationships build familiarity and trust. They make it easier to work together more quickly. So that's essential. But we also need our agreements with teeth. There needs to be accountability in this process. We can't have another instance where uh, there isn't transparency and data sharing uh, that helps us get to the, the bottom you know, of COVID origins, for example, or that helps us understand when a threat has emerged so we can leap to action together as a global community to address it with maximal lead time. Uh, so all of that, I believe, is important in the components we need to assemble for an effective pandemic response. Uh,
12: lastly, I'm going to ask you about Taiwan. Uh, for the last two years, the Biden administration has pledged to bring Taiwan back into the World Health Assembly as an observer, and for two years straight, China has blocked that from happening. Um, the, is the fact that the, the administration, uh, despite its best efforts, has been un, unable to win this status for Taiwan, does uh, this constitute uh, some evidence that the organization is... Deferring to the Chinese Communist Party and is its wishes, or is it something else? Well, it's a good question, Senator.
3: This is one of the areas that I would be happy to to get into if I had the opportunity to serve. Once I, uh, you know, and have the opportunity to start in the position, my my hope would be to approach this with a clear set of priorities, but also with an intent to understand how decisions have been made. It's been we've been clear, you know, about about Taiwan, how uh, what role we think Taiwan can and should have in terms of conversations related to global health. Uh, And that's an area where I am certainly prepared to weigh in as well, if I have the chance to serve on the executive board.
12: Thank you, doctor. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, uh, the prodigiously patient patriot, Mr. Ricketts.
13: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And you've got a heck of a barber too. Well, I want to thank, again, add my thanks to all the panelists for your service to our great nation. And I also want to thank your families as well, because I know they serve alongside you as you're serving our country. And especially to our uh, members of the Foreign Service, thank you. I was governor of Nebraska. I had the opportunity to lead about two trade missions a year around the world. And I got to tell you, every time I was in an embassy, I was very impressed with the quality of people who are representing our country overseas. So thank you very much for your service. In particular, I had direct experience with that. Uh, Dr. Murthy. So I share also some of my colleagues' disappointment with the WHO and specifically around the COVID pandemic. Again, as I mentioned, I was governor and so I had uh, kind of a front row seat to the failures of the WHO as we went through that pandemic on a number of different uh, levels. But um, what I wanna focus on is um, kind of something that Senator Haggerty mentioned about before If you're confirmed, will you ensure that the WHO conducts a true and thorough investigation into the origins of the COVID pandemic, the actions of the Chinese Communist Party? There's been a lot of folks at the WHO who claim to be committed to getting real answers about the pandemic and claim to be tough on China. But as soon as the Chinese Communist Party pushes back, you know, for example, um, denies entry to a lab or refuses to to allow a doctor or scientist, uh, you know, to have access for us they all kind of back down and do nothing. And certainly, I think that uh, a lot of the information early on, especially, it seemed like the WHO was really being deferential to the CCP, which I think all of us would agree does not share our values here in the United States. I think the US representative of the WHO needs to have a specific plan to um, when you arrive on how you're gonna get these answers. So do you have a specific plan on how to ensure the WHO conducts a thorough investigation and gets the best as we can, gets to the origins of uh, the COVID pandemic and the Chinese Communist Party's role in that?
3: Yeah. Thank you, Senator. I, I continue to believe this is a, a very important issue for us to get to the bottom of. We can't afford to cast it off and just move on uh, for two critical reasons. One is understanding the origins of this pandemic will help us be better prepared for the future. But there's also to me a more important, an equally important principle at play here, which is that if we are truly in, in the era of global health, we need to be a global community. That means we all have to be transparent, open and cooperative, and it can't be allowed for one nation uh, to not be transparent, uh, to not allow a thorough investigation with integrity to take place. That That doesn't only put a threat our ability to understand COVID but it puts a threat, I believe, you know, our ability to be effective and demand transparency from all countries in future responses. So if I have the opportunity to serve, this is an issue that I would press as an executive board member. I would work together uh, with our other colleagues in the administration uh, who also feel strongly uh, that we need to get to the origins and the, the bottom of the, the story about COVID origins. Uh, and this is something I would look to engage directly with the director of the WHO on.
13: So you don't have a plan quite yet. You're going to, if you're confirmed, then you'll work on a plan together about how we tackle this problem of getting to the origins of COVID? Well, is s- that what I hear you saying?
3: Well, I, there. this has certainly been an issue that my colleagues who are currently engaging with the WHO have been uh, engaged with uh, the leadership they are on. And what I would look to do if I start in this position, as I have done in prior positions, is is first, understand those conversations, understand where we're not making progress, and then lean in to those areas so that we can ensure that we have a robust uh, engagement with the WHO, and we are pushing uh, this agenda on a full investigation.
13: So what's your thoughts on how we get the CCP to be responsive and be transparent? Because obviously, if indeed it was from a lab in Wuhan, they're the ones that have the data. How how do we actually get them? Do you have any thoughts on how we can get them to cooperate? Well, Senator, I think that
3: is the the, the delicate and, and work that we've got to do uh, when it comes to both our diplomacy, but also thinking about the uh, sort of measures that we take in putting these global agreements together to ensure that they have teeth. You know, I think there are certainly measures that have been discussed, you know, you know, over the last couple of years, you know, we're learning from this experience, uh, you know, where we have to, again, ensure that there are consequences for a lack of uh, cooperation, lack of transparency. And again, this is part of what I would look to uh, to engage on and to uh, work with my colleagues in the U.S. government on because, again, as I said, this to me, this is not a back burner issue. This is not something we can afford to put aside. This is front and center of one of my core priorities that I mentioned earlier on, which is pandemic preparedness. And that means we've got to get to the bottoms of COVID origins.
13: Yeah, as you know, doing an after-action report or post-mortem, whatever we want to call it afterwards, is going to be important. I think that getting... Uh, the Chinese Communist Party to cooperate with that somehow is gonna be important. Um, I'm out of time, but I, I would note, Ms. Tremont, you're the only person who hasn't been asked a question here today. I feel bad, I don't even have a question for you, but <laughs> just thought I'd recognize you here since everybody else got to talk on the panel and you showed up, you know, got
0: dressed up for nothing. <laughs>
8: Thank you, Senator. Zimbabwe is feeling a little bit neglected. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Senator because you are the only one that abided by the time limits of five minutes, so I, I appreciate your discipline in that, in that measure. Um, I'm gonna uh, ask them questions if I may now. I'm grateful that we had such a great turnout um, from my colleagues and you can see uh, the sub- seriousness with which they take the important roles that each of you will play. I will go to Zimbabwe if I may. <laughs> um, I remember flying there with this incredible bipartisan delegation that ranged from Chris Coons to uh, then Senator Jeff Flake and we were coming there right after Amangagwa got elected and we had some, a, a good sanctions regime, uh, and we were looking forward to talking to them, hopeful that uh, the democratic norms uh, that we wanted to see, uh, that we could find some way to leverage the economic pressures we had. As we were landing, interestingly enough, we were reading in the newspaper that uh, uh, representatives from M Ngagwa's team were landing from China, and China did not have concerns Uh, about uh, their democratic norms and and principles. And so I guess I I have a couple questions. One, it's it's been disappointing to me to see the challenges uh, for democracy in Zimbabwe. And I'm wondering what do you think the uh, commitment of Emengagwa is uh, to to, to key reforms that we would clearly like to see as we continue and maintain this sanctions regime. And then I'm curious about the influence of China, perhaps in many of the countries uh, in Africa, But I'm curious what your perspective might be in in terms of informing what is an area of bipartisan concern as as China's growing influence on the continent.
8: Thank you, Mr. Chairman, for that question. The U.S. government warmly welcomed the improved tone of President Monongagwa after his inauguration in 2018. But it is true to say there is a lot of work remaining before we see the sustained governance and economic reforms that he promised. Zimbabwe is still not meeting the requirements of its own constitution, nor its commitments to the African Union and the Southern African development community. There, We've recently seen, over the recent months, increased political violence against people expressing uh, legal political activity, um, biased implementation of laws and rights. Uh, the U.S. government has been very concerned about this and has not hesitated to call out violence when we see it. If confirmed, I look forward to having frank and respectful conversations with the Zimbabwean government about what sort of governance and democratic reforms would make the, the elections more credible and provide the Zimbabwean people the, their constitutional right to express their political will in a peaceful environment. Regarding China, that's a big question. As you know, uh, China has been investing in the extractive industries all over the world, and Zimbabwe, with its rich mineral resources, is no exception. Uh, in fact, the PRC and Russia comprise about 90 percent of the foreign direct investment in Zimbabwe's mineral sector. Unfortunately, there's very little transparency regarding the terms of those contracts. So while I would always support private sector-led growth in Zimbabwe or any country Um, I certainly hope the Zimbabwean government is ensuring that the Zimbabwean people are getting fair compensation for the minerals taken from their country. In addition, I hope that they are looking at the environmental impact of these countries' investments and observing local labor labor laws to protect the workers who work for the Chinese companies. If confirmed, I would ensure that U.S. businesses also have a fair and level playing field to invest in the many uh, investment opportunities in Zimbabwe.
0: Thank you very much. I, I see Senator Barroso has come. I'm going to suspend my questioning. Uh, he's a far more senior senator than I am with a lot more demands on his time, and I'm going to allow him now uh, to, to commence his questioning before I uh, finish mine.
4: Thank, Thanks so much, Mr. Chairman. I appreciate it. Uh, uh, Dr. Murthy, good to see you again. You know, Like you, I'm a physician. We've been on programs together at various locations. One of my biggest concerns is this loss of credibility by public health agencies, especially the World Health Organization. Uh, Time and again, the American people see public health bureaucrats putting politics ahead of sound science. Uh, I think this needs to stop. Uh, As an example, the Department of Energy now and the Federal Bureau of Investigation have concluded that the COVID pandemic likely stemmed from uh, a leak from a Chinese lab Uh, This is something Republicans have been saying for a long time, and Chairman McCall of the House Foreign Relations Committee, former Senator Richard Burr, the HELP Committee, each released separate reports with the same conclusion. So do you agree with the Department of Energy and with the FBI that the pandemic likely originated from a Chinese lab leak?
3: Well, thank you, Senator Barrasso, and it is good to see you again as well. Um, while, While I have not looked at the data that the Intelligence Committee has looked at, and that's not my primary area of expertise, Uh, I did note uh, what both of them, both departments have said publicly, and I also understand that there is a diverse set of views in the intelligence community about the origins. Uh, I do think what's essential here uh, is that we pursue uh, aggressively the investigation here to understand what the true origins are, uh, recognizing that there are multiple possibilities here, but I also think that one of the obstacles we've had, Senator, is having transparency with regard to China, and we have not been able to get some of the information we need to do, a full and thorough investigation, and that needs to happen.
4: So, so if confirmed, what actions would you support uh, in terms of the World Health Organization, uh, in terms of taking to hold uh, China accountable?
3: Well, Senator, my, my feeling is that as we embark in this new phase uh, of learning from this pandemic and better prepare for the next one, we have to have guidelines, rules that we all abide by, rules that have teeth. Otherwise, it it doesn't serve us well. I also worry that if we allow an instance where one country does not uh, end up engaging in a transparent way, it creates more more opportunities and almost license for others to do the same later in future pandemics. Um, My approach, if I have the privilege of serving, Senator, would be, number one, to to go in there and to engage and understand the conversations that our colleagues across USG have had uh, with the WHO specifically about them being, uh, you know, conducting an investigation with integrity. Second, to assess where the gaps are. And third, to then press WHO leadership to close those gaps. And in that process, Senator, I would welcome the opportunity to work with you and others in this committee. Thanks.
4: Uh, Ms. Tremont, if I could, uh, 2022... Uh, Zimbabwe's president praised their, quote, excellent relations with China. Uh, that followed the gift of a $200 million parliament building funded by and constructed by China. Uh, in 2021, Zimbabwe opened their national data center with China helped to build. The Net One, Zimbabwe's state-owned telecoms network, has received about $239 million uh, from China since 2013. The purpose of the center is to gather information from the government and private firms that includes banks. So so how can we do a better job in countering this Chinese influence in Africa?
8: Senator, thank you for that question. Um, Obviously, I can only speak for Zimbabwe. But, yes, Zimbabwe and China have a long-standing relationship that goes all the way back to Zimbabwe's war for independence. I think the difference between Chinese investments in Zimbabwe and perhaps other places in Africa is the US investments, the 4.5 billion dollars that we have invested in Zimbabwean people have been for the people to promote their health, to defend the democratic space, to improve the electoral systems, to increase food security. 700,000 Zimbabweans benefited from our food security and agricultural programs last year. That's tremendously important in light of the food shortages brought on by Russia's unprovoked war against Ukraine. Whereas the Chinese investments are much more for the government of Zimbabwe. The parliament building doesn't necessarily benefit the Zimbabwean people the way U.S. investment does. Um, and I do believe also that we hold our U.S. companies to a much higher standard when they invest in the private sector around the world than other countries do.
4: So, so if confirmed, how will you help shed light on some of the terrible practices and atrocities committed um, by China to Africa?
8: Well, Senator, I think that our um, fantastic embassy in Harare has excellent outreach and public relations with the entire country. And I think our image among the Zimbabwean people is much different than what you will sometimes see in the press or from official mouthpieces in Zimbabwe. And so if confirmed, I would continue that outreach and underscore to the Zimbabwean people our commitment to them and to their well-being and to defending their democratic rights, which are enshrined in their constitution.
4: Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
0: Um, thank you very much, Senator. Uh, I just want to continue with that line of questioning. Again, there's a, a real concern, uh, bipartisan concern, about China's growing influence. Uh, uh, I think the, the Senator said it right, the sort of corrupt practices that they use and engage in, um, uh, how that often results in uh, their influence, how they vote in, uh, in, in, in different world organizations. It is a growing concern. At the recent summit of Africa leaders, I, I heard at least a lot of discussion about how they prefer us as partners, but feel often we're not stepping up to uh, compete and fill the gap. How Chinese, when they come in and do major projects, for example, they're not using uh, local labor. They're not really helping to, to build. I'm just wondering if you have insights for us, because I think there's a lot of work we could do as a, as a, as a, uh, as a committee to try to better empower uh, American interests and and frankly, that align with the interests of different African nations. do you have any insights that you might want to add uh, to the to the senator's uh, concerns in mind?
8: Thank you for that question, Senator. I believe that u s business and their investments overseas represent u s values in a way that Chinese investments do not. we require that our country, our companies do not pay bribes. We have anti-corruption legislation that we enforce from back here at home. We highlight and press our own companies to enforce local labor laws and abide by the local laws. Other regimes who do not share our values do not hold their companies to those same values. So our I think our investments and our companies will always have a slightly tougher row to hoe as a result. But I don't think that we can compromise on those in order to compete um, in a race to the bottom uh, for investment in Africa and influence there. I have not been confirmed yet. I don't I you know I haven't been to Zimbabwe in a very long time. But my sense is that the Zimbabwean people are keenly aware that they are not benefiting from Chinese investment in Zimbabwe. And I think that's an important point to make.
0: It is, and it touches on everything from national security issues for us. Uh, economic uh, opportunity, and again, rare earth metals, I could go through the things that are challenging for us, um, as well as helping countries have uh, a democracy, because our, our values, our democratic values, are very different than the Chinese. So I'm grateful uh, for your thoughtfulness on this question, and I look forward to continuing should you be confirmed this dialogue, but maybe I'll, I'll switch right to Mr. Uh, Needler. Um, There is a real problem in Rwanda uh, around rare-earth metals, and I would say uh, we see alleged smuggling uh, of of resources from the DRC conflict uh, zone that are contributing to the destabilization of the country, the exploitation of people, and again, often working against America's interests as we globally compete for these critical rare-earth metals. Um, I'm wondering if if you have an assessment of Rwanda's involvement in mineral smuggling um, uh, and uh, not only its impact, if you can give me your thoughts, if you agree with me about the severity of the the crisis, but um, some thoughts on how do we uh, stop it?
7: Mr. Chairman, thank you very much uh, for the question. This is uh, indeed uh, a very uh, serious concern. The issue of the illicit flow of resources across borders Uh, throughout the region, throughout the Great Lakes uh, region. There are a number of regional initiatives established to deal with precisely this problem. Uh, Rwanda uh, participates in a number of these initiatives. Rwanda has also taken uh, some steps to legitimize its mineral trade, uh, has implemented uh, some traceability measures. Uh, But it's true, there is still uh, work to be done uh, in that regard. If confirmed, Senator, I would uh, look forward to working with Rwanda to, to plug those remaining gaps,
0: uh, but it is uh, an issue of concern. I, I appreciate that. And, and my last question, uh, uh, Dr. General, my mother would be more proud of you, Murthy. Um, uh, it, it, I, you, you heard from my Republican colleagues, which I think are all legitimate concerns about US sovereignty, about transparency. I think my colleagues, uh, Republican colleagues put, put rightfully, um, trying to get facts and truth out. Um, I I wonder if I could ask some of their, uh, maybe the inverse of their questions. Because I see China uh, trying to influence a lot of world organizations, not just the United Nations. They are trying to out influence us in creating the rules of the world order. And I guess I would like to hear from you with the legitimate concerns that my colleagues have brought up, what is the opportunity lost should we not be leaning into an organization like the WHO if we don't exercise America, Americans' leadership? And as I often hear from our peer countries, the indispensable nature of America's leadership in defining the world order.
3: Well, thank you, uh, Senator Booker, for that question. I think there's a lot to be lost if we don't have American leadership at the WHO. I think we are the nation that can most effectively press for the transparency and the accountability that is needed to make the WHO into the even more effective and, and impactful organization that it needs to be for the future. But I also think what matters are our values. When we lead, the approach we take to global health is one that supports human rights, that brings people to the table, that looks to care for and support the most underserved communities that are traditionally left out. These are important values that we can't take for granted. And I'm not confident that without American leadership, uh, that those values would be advanced uh, with the same vigor and effectiveness. So I think it's vital that we are on the world stage engaging with the WHO and bringing member nations together to push for the effective organization in the WHO that we need. Uh, And to ensure, again, that agreements that we put together, amendments that we make to the international health regulations uh, are ones that not only make sense, but have teeth. So we can move together with strong relationships, but also with accountability. That, in my mind, Senator, is how we create a safer world for tomorrow. That's how we ensure that the risk to our children of enduring another pandemic uh, and one that has impacts both on their physical and mental health, is diminished in probability. And that's why I feel that this is urgent work, because we can't wait another five or ten years uh, to engage and ensure that the WHO is the effective organization it needs
0: to be. We need to do that work right now. So I, I, you're, 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 unlike the other four on the panel, you and I have known each other for ten years. I consider you a friend. I could whisper this to you privately, but I want to say it to you publicly. I think that my, a lot of my Republican colleagues... Uh, are, are, are such good faith actors um, that it would behoove you, should you get confirmed, to pull some of them close in um, in this important role that you have. I see you and Senator Barrasso are both doctors. Um, I, too, have a science degree um, in <laughs> political science, um, but um, there's a lot of expertise here on this subcommittee um, that I think could really work well to have us uh, take our, our role in, in, in organizations like the WHO to another level of leadership uh, that also gives the American public uh, the confidence that these organizations are not being used to undermine public safety or to obscure truth in fact, but indeed uh, to help them make for a safer world. I want to also say... Uh, uh, for the record, and not that I'm picking on you, uh, Doctor General, who my mom would be more proud of, um, I want to just say to you that your work in the area of uh, mental health—it is a global crisis coming out of a pandemic—and um, I think that that you have unique insights and expertise um, that uh, could really help, uh, not just at home as you're in your role as Attorney General, but in, in, a, in a larger uh, planet that's seeing a lot more stressors. Uh, on a, a lot of nations, and, and I'm looking forward to learning a lot more for you. I want to say to the group, as, we, as I bring this um, uh, to a close, um, Ms. Uh, Fitzgibbons, you talked about the development, democracy, uh, diplomacy. I want to use uh, different Ds for you. Um, every one of you is doing a job, and, or, or, or should you be confirmed, will have to do a job and especially the folks who've been career diplomats have, have done this with the deeds of uh, doing things that are difficult, uh, doing things that are demanding and doing things that are very, very dangerous. we We are a nation that has seen uh, the challenges our diplomats have faced um, from uh, physical attacks uh, to dealing with environments that are are, are amidst severe conflict. We also know that the work that you do and many of us who travel And as members of the Foreign Relations Committee, we get to see with our own eyes, you all are doing work that ultimately are securing democracy, saving lives, expanding access to human rights. Um, The work that you all do is extraordinary. And the the support you get from your family, I'm so happy that many of you had family members here, uh, should be noted. I I didn't just say that uh, in in a perfunctory matter about your patriotism, because... There are a lot of symbols of patriotism, but you all, in many ways, as we travel around the world, are showing the substance of, of what I think is uh, uh, lives dedicated to making this nation and the world a better place. Um, I love our history, and I, and I love the role that some of our first ambassadors held. People like Ben Franklin and Thomas Jefferson, um, they showed the way of what it means to be uh, 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 the light of this nation abroad and helping to not only secure American interests, but make for better alliances and more hope and democracy uh, globally. And so I just want to say as we bring this hearing to a conclusion uh, that um, I am grateful, I am hopeful, and while this might not have, I just came from an earlier hearing today with the Attorney General, which was a packed room. You may not see uh, 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 the, the celebrity of this moment, but you all are people that are more concerned with significance and celebrity and deep purpose uh, than simple popularity. And so with that, I am going to adjourn the hearing. I'd like to thank you all uh, for your participation. I want to thank your family members for coming as well. Uh, you all know this, but this hearing record will remain open until the close of business on Thursday, March 2nd. I guess that's tomorrow. Okay, it's going to stay open until the end of business tomorrow, uh, March second. Um, I would encourage you that if there are questions for the record, many of my colleagues uh, who are pulled in different directions on uh, on the days we're in session, uh, they may ha- may submit to you uh, questions for the record. I suggest you take them very seriously, as I know that you do. Answer them diligently, um, so that we can have a-, a smooth vote here in the Senate, which I hope uh, in this committee, which I hope then we will send you to the Senate for for a full vote, Uh, but I am very honored uh, to be sitting before you all, and I really do hope uh, that I get a chance to serve with you uh, in the positions to which you have been nominated. With that, uh, this hearing is adjourned.